On May 21st, President Bush delivered the commencement address at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Calvin College was founded by the Christian Reformed Church, a denomination historically committed to a biblical worldview as articulated by the Swiss reformer John Calvin. So we have a Christian president, a self-proclaimed evangelical believer, who offers to speak at the commencement services of a small, private, Protestant, biblical worldview college. You would assume he would be received rather warmly for this great opportunity for Calvin College. But the day before commencement, 800 self-described alumni, faculty, and friends of Calvin College took out a full-page article in the Grand Rapids Press protesting Bush's visit. The student newspaper also raised an angry voice of opposition that the president would speak at their hallowed ground. Then 130 Calvin professors took out a half-page ad that appeared the morning of commencement, also objecting and protesting to Bush's visit. One of the professors that took it, participated in taking, in taking out that ad was asked and um, offered to sit next to President Bush on the platform as he addressed the audience and the professor said that he would rather weed his garden. One baffled Christian reform pastor, apparently from a more conservative bent, with knowledge of the school, questioned publicly how an institution that could claim the biblical worldview is big enough to open its arms and welcome homosexuals on campus could not find enough tolerance to welcome a sitting president of the United States to speak at its campus. There's an awful lot that could be said about this little scenario, but suffice it to say here, such is life in a democracy. Even at Protestant colleges. Many at Calvin warmly welcomed President Bush, just to set the record straight, and the majority did. When the Calvin Fieldhouse, when he entered Calvin Fieldhouse to deliver his address, I understand there was a standing ovation for him and, and a warm welcome. We could argue that it's bad manners to reject a president in this way, but really, in the end, such is life in a democracy. We, the people, have the freedom to either receive or to spurn the president of our nation, either at the polls or even in person. No one went to jail. No one was punished. No one lost their job. This is life in a democracy. It is something altogether more sinister that we witness taking place in Israel's history throughout the Old Testament. Israel, you remember, was not a democracy ruled by the people. People getting together and deciding who will be their ruler. But rather, Israel was a theocracy. God ruled the nation. God chose to love the children of Abraham as His unique people. God mercifully rescued Israel from Egyptian slavery. And then at Mount Sinai, God Himself initiated a covenant with Israel. Israel agreed to serve God alone. 
And God promised to lead and to protect and to love Israel, working out His saving purposes exclusively through this chosen nation. This was no president. This was no democracy. This was a theocracy. Israel was the most privileged people on earth. And one might find in their heart, depending on their bent, some willingness to forgive those in a democracy who might treat a a president so poorly. But what do we say when we see Israel rejecting her God over and over again? She was the most privileged people on earth. The king and creator of the universe was her ruler. But this is where the story just continues to grow darker. We find in the pages of Scripture that the sovereign God lovingly sent his prophets to convey his truth to his people. How did Israel respond? She continued to stiffen her neck, to harden her heart against the will of Almighty God. This is not a lovely story. It is not the kind of story that we want to hear. I have not yet to this day found in children's Bible story books this story. It's not something you want to put in their head as you read the story before they go to bed or as you read at the dinner table a Bible story from a children's Bible story book that God was repeatedly rejected by his people. But this is reality. God's chosen people consistently rejected God's messengers. And at no time in history was this pattern more tragically displayed than during the earthly ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was one of a band of prophetic brothers linked together through the centuries by Israel's rejection of their message of faith and repentance. It has been common for liberal scholars to argue that Jesus was shocked by Israel's rejection, that Jesus believed he would be embraced by the nation, accepted, and he was as shocked as anyone as he hung on the cross. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus knew all along that he would be rejected. Notice Luke chapter 13 as we remember this theme running through the teaching of Christ. When the days were good, when the people were receiving him, when he was the most popular teacher in Israel, Jesus was teaching about his eventual rejection. Chapter 13 and verse 6. He tells the parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. And he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is a clear warning to the nation that time is running out. She is rejecting the ultimate prophet. Chapter, same chapter, verse 34. Verse 34 of chapter 13. 
we find Jesus saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Rejection is coming. It's marching forward. Chapter 19 and verse 41. Chapter 19 of Luke and verse 41. In the midst of this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as he rides the donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, as he approaches Jerusalem 19.41, he sees the city and he weeps over it, saying, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It is Tuesday before Passover. Jesus is teaching in the temple courtyard. The leaders of Israel have decided to kill him, but the people surround Jesus at this place, hanging on his every word. The leaders are furious. Jesus has presented himself as Messiah. The people have been cheering him as he comes into the city, and Jesus has done nothing to stop them. They are all further infuriated by the fact that Jesus goes into the temple and he cleans out all of the money makers that have set up their tables in the temple courts. They want Jesus dead. The die is cast for a great showdown, and it is in this context, in the temple area on Tuesday, that Jesus says, Luke chapter 20 and verse 19, and verse 9 rather, Luke 20 and verse 9, he went on to tell the people this parable. Now think of this in context. Think of the context of Israel. Think of the context of the moment. Think of how Jesus knows what is going to happen. He gives this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Common practice in that day. For a wealthy landowner to lease a vineyard to vine dressers. Common also for the contract to stipulate that the way that the owner would be paid would be from a percentage of the produce of the vineyard. Verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, part of the contract. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's certainly rude behavior. It's also a breach of contract. That's not how you respond to the owner's servant when he comes to receive his portion of the produce. The owner then, verse 11, sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. This, this servant also presents himself to the tenant farmers, requesting the master's share of produce. Again, they mistreat him. They send him away. A second servant comes back to the master and probably showing his external wounds, tells him what has happened. Verse 12. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him 
out. This is not their vineyard. It doesn't belong to them, to these tenants. They're simply farming this vineyard for the owner. There's profit to them, there's to be profit to the owner, but it's not their vineyard. But these tenants are evil men, and they refuse to honor the owner by mistreating his servants. Then, verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love, perhaps they will respect him. Let's think of this just for a moment. In that culture, we need to bridge the gap just a little bit. In that culture, a son shared equally in his father's status. He is, for all practical purposes, his father and would be seen that way legally. The son has a higher cultural status than do the servants that had been sent, and a higher cultural status, for that matter, than the vine dressers whom he will be meeting. So anyone would assume that the son will receive better treatment than did the servants. Might think, for instance, a, a business person might mistreat a bill collector who's irritating him at his business. But then all of a sudden, the bank owner walks in the door who is floating this man's whole program. You expect he's going to treat the bank owner just a little better, don't you? These tenants will not be so stupid, certainly, as to beat the son like they did these menial servants. Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, that is the son. They talked the matter over. They reasoned among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Remembering again the setting of the day, you don't wire money to the owner's account. He had to be paid physically. And so it was common practice in that day that if an owner didn't show up for three years, the land reverted to the tenants. That was enough evidence that the owner wasn't coming back or didn't care any longer. So if he doesn't show up for three years to collect anything, the vineyard is his. These tenants apparently are drawing this conclusion then that if they, for whatever motivation and however they're reasoning among themselves, if they get rid of the sun, the vineyard will become theirs. They can lay claim to it. It's not theirs, but they want it. And having no regard for the rightful owner, they ruthlessly kill the son. Verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. In their greed and pride, the tenants run the son out of the vineyard, and then they fall upon him and kill him. They take his life so that they can take his father's vineyard. And Jesus asked the question here, the middle of verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? The most obvious answer is, they will call the authorities, they will arrest these tenants, the tenants will hire a fancy lawyer, they will lock the thing up in litigation forever, after a while they'll plead to a lesser crime, and after good behavior for a while, they'll get out in a fairly short time from prison, right? That's America. That's not this day. This is an economy that lives under the law of God. One simple law under God's law, you take life 
we take yours. That is the law. Anyone who snuffs out human life will be killed. That's the way it goes. Everyone would have understood that. You ask that question in our day and you get a debate going on as to what should happen. No debate in Israeli society under the law of God. You take a life, you lose your life. That is the rule. That is the law of God. And so the answer is obvious. Verse 16, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That is what God's will says. It's recorded in Scripture. This is how they are to be treated. That's the only right thing to do. They have killed the Son. Their life will be taken. Retribution against the wicked tenants. And you notice that simple phrase in there that can get lost pretty easily. The vineyard will be given to others. It will be turned over to someone else. Now, somewhere along the line here, I don't know where, but somewhere along the line, remember, there's, there's crowds standing around people. They're hanging on every word that he says. I, I wonder even if it might not be possible that he's repeated this parable more than once, even here during this day at the temple area to different groups of people. But they're hanging on his every word, listening to this, and somewhere along the way, it begins to dawn on them what Jesus is saying. The implications of this parable. We might categorize it as an allegory, allegorical in nature. That is, it corresponds to history. It's not simply making a simple point, but is in fact has something to do with what is going on around Jesus' life at this time. And it's pretty rare for Jesus' parables to be allegorical. But people begin to put together here that the vineyard is something like life as God's people. Some might identify it specifically with Israel. I think there's some reason to believe that the vineyard might be better identified just with life as God's people. The theocracy, uh, Alfred Edersheim claims, and that might be a good interpretation. The tenants, who are they? Jesus is setting them up as the leaders of Israel, representing the people who participate with those leaders. But the leaders of Israel, the servants, are the prophets that God sends to Israel. The Son is Jesus Himself, and the owner is God the Father. This all begins to dawn on people as Jesus is telling this parable. How much they grasped and where and who and all of that, we don't know, but they get the gist. Remembering Israel's history of rejecting prophets, this is a very pointed and offensive story. Now, as they would look at it in their time, the religious leaders of Israel, they re I mean, they're reading the same passages of Scripture. They read the texts of the Old Testament that talk about how Israel consistently rejected the prophets. And how do they look at that? Well, we know that. We understand that. We've had a bad history as a nation, as God's people, rejecting the true prophets. But that was them. That's not us. It was always somebody in the past who was wrong. It was never them who was really wrong. But Jesus is beginning to say, and through this story is in fact making the point fairly explicit, you are in the same line of rejectors. And you are in fact rejecting the Son of God. Luke records here the crowd reaction at the middle of verse 16. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. I don't know what they mean by that. I'm not, it's, it's, it's difficult to interpret. 
Perhaps they are simply horrified that Jesus thinks Israel will reject God's greatest prophet in this way. But Jesus now assures them that this is exactly what is happening. Whatever they mean by the phrase, may this never be, Jesus makes it very clear to them what he intends to teach. In verse 17, he looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? I prefer the marginal reading of cornerstone for reasons we don't need to go into here, but at any rate, the point is really the same. Remember just two days earlier, what were the pilgrim, the Passover pilgrims, what were they singing? Remember, as Pastor Pratt read earlier, they were singing from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is this glorious psalm of God's rescue. The crowds were taking from that psalm this great phrase, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. As far as we can know, historically, the background of Psalm 118 is some great victory in Israel where the king of Israel leads the people into battle and there appears to be a great uh, difficulty in this battle, but God brings the victory and brings his king home to the people and they rejoice in the victory that God has given. And there were the people, just back on Sunday of this week, singing this glorious hymn. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They are rejoicing that God has sent Jesus Christ. And perhaps some of them certainly believing that He was indeed Messiah prophesied in Psalm 118. He had come. You know what Jesus does essentially? is He takes out His Bible he unravels the scroll and he points to a verse in Psalm 118 and says, let's read the whole psalm. There in Psalm 118, there is this reference to the king who was rejected but has now become the cornerstone. What does that mean? The enemies of the king in the context of Psalm 118 had rejected him. But God had brought him to be the chief cornerstone. That larger, fir, that larger stone that is set down on the foundation of a corner of two walls, both walls having their weight centered upon that stone. In other words, the stone that they rejected became the most important stone in the building. That is the king of Israel in Psalm 118. That, says Jesus, is me. It's very interesting here. The leaders of Israel were referred to at that time as the builders of Israel. That was just a popular phrase. I mean, I, they felt pretty proud about it. You know, they, they wanted that pinned on their chest. I'm one of the builders of Israel. Jesus says, do you remember what it says in Psalm 118? The builders rejected the stone that God made the cornerstone. It is an explicit rebuke. Israel has rejected the stone Messiah. Now remember the owner of the vineyard? How did he respond when his son was killed? 
Notice what Jesus says next in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whom it falls, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. You may reject the Son, but understand this, you will not get away with it. We can take this picture. When, when, by the way, when the Bible speaks of stone, we often use stone, it means something you can pick up in your hand and skip across a lake, something like that. Generally, the word stone in Scripture is speaking of a great rock, something much larger. And that is the picture here. Let's take this, this great rock and consider taking a clay pot and we take the clay pot up to the top of our building here and we drop it down on top of the rock. Is it going to hurt that rock? What's going to happen when that pot hits the rock and attacks the rock? It's going to be shattered, broken to smithereens. That can affect the rock at all. What would happen should we set that pot on a road next to a ledge of rock and out of that ledge breaks off this massive stone that comes rolling down the side of the cliff and lands right square on top of that pot? It will reduce it to dust. That, says Jesus, is the picture that I want you to understand about your relationship with the Son. He's not messing around here, is he? You attack the sun and you will be, be destroyed like a clay pot falling on a massive rock. But in the end, he on whom that rock falls will be literally winnowed. That means reduced to dust that the wind can blow away. So those who now actively resist the Son will do so to their destruction, and those in the end who are not on the Son's side will be ground to dust. You do not reject God's Son and get away with it. By this time, there was no doubt what Jesus was saying. And so, notice verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. They wanted to get their hands on Jesus now. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. He had tagged them as members of the long string of Israeli leaders who reject God's prophets, and they were livid. They were more than ready to take the Son of God outside the walls and to kill Him right now to bring the prophecy to fulfillment this day. But Christ's time had not yet come, that last phrase in the NIV, but they were afraid of the people. The crowds who surround Jesus protect him from the religious leaders of Israel. For now, Jesus is safe behind a wall of public acclaim. That wall will soon crumble. For now, Jesus is safe, but soon the stone will be rejected. Not only by Israel's leaders, but by the entire nation that they represent. 
you take a deep breath, and let's meditate for a while. We won't linger long, but let's do some more work here and meditate and think. I think this text of Scripture certainly speaks to us of depravity, doesn't it? I think if we really understood and we could put ourselves there with Jesus and and be in the crowd listening in on his teaching, I think there would be a chill running up our spine at how wicked people are. I can't read this passage fairly and not draw that conclusion. This passage speaks with clarity to the natural depravity of the human heart. We need this reality check from the Word of God. Even the evangelical world has become skilled at offering an excuse for virtually every sin. The reason that you do wrong is because of what someone else has done to you. That is the predominant view in dealing with sin, it appears to me these days. There is not, as one leader said, there is not a sin behind which suffering does not lie. His point was, there's no sin that we commit but what we have been pushed to do it by someone else. We look at a passage like this and it brings such thinking into clarity. It's false teaching. Certainly there are sins we commit because someone else has wronged us. I don't mean to say that. But I mean to say we sin not because of how someone pushed us, but because it's in us. There is no place in all of reality that we see more clearly the depravity of humanity than in the rejection of Jesus Christ. He did no wrong. No deception was found in his mouth. He healed not for selfish purposes, but for the grace. And he taught the truth of God and lived it to perfection, and he was killed. This is one dark scene. The Bible teaches from cover to cover that the heart of man is bent against the truth of God, that rejecting his truth is epidemic. To witness the rejection of Jesus is to stare directly into the face of evil. Moving off of that theme of depravity, there is here, I think, also a word on religiosity. Among the worst offenders who reject God's truth are religious people. The diagnosis is not very good at first as we look at the depravity of humanity, but if it could get worse, it does when we consider that the people most responsible for rejecting God's truth are religious people. It's not to say non-religious people are somehow guiltless in, in all of this. They're not at all. But we would like to believe that the people who reject Jesus and the people who reject God's call upon their life are the people who don't have any time for God. That's just really not the way that it is. What we find in the life of Jesus is, is that the worst offenders who reject God's truth are people who read God's word every day, who prayed every day 
who considered God's truth as a lifestyle. There is a grave danger in not going to church. There's a grave danger in not reading your Bible and praying and doing what we might refer to as religious things. That's not safe either. But let me tell you, there is also a unique danger in sitting here in this auditorium today. That danger is that religious people are particularly prone to think that they are right with God because of what they are doing. Remember, the people who most aggressively opposed God's Son were the very people who were the most religious. As I said, they read God's Word every day. They prayed every day. They were at the temple. They attended synagogue. They sacrificed. The law of God was their life. You stand any one of these objectors of Jesus up in the temple and you ask him, is the law of God your life? And he would sign with his own blood that it was. He thought every day about the law of God. The law of God was pervasive in his eyes. And yet it's these people who led the charge to put Jesus to death. When God's Son took on flesh and came to give them life, they put him to death. Their religion was not a life of submission to God in the end. It was a life of self-promotion. We can't read this honestly and do the work that God would have us to do here and consider what the Holy Spirit is saying. We cannot do that without asking ourselves today, am I in the faith Being here and being involved in the spiritual disciplines is not the answer. We must go deeper than that and ask, am I Christ's child? And I think there is thirdly here a word on religion itself. As we move through depravity and religiosity, and we are warned by God's Word to consider whether or not we are in the faith. There is a word here, I think, on religion as well. The religious leaders of Israel sought to steal the kingdom of God. I would tell you, you're not going to think about a more stupid thing this week than that. That is utterly insane. They sought to steal God's kingdom away from him. Now they don't, I'm not saying that they saw it that way, but that is in fact what they are doing. They want the vineyard to be theirs. These religious people who think about the law of God as a lifestyle want to take God's kingdom away and make it their own. It's frighteningly depraved. But that's what they're doing. And I don't think that we are off base at all to say we better be very careful because the same project is, under, is, is being undertaken today in the church of Jesus Christ. I believe that there are people and there is a movement that is very much underfoot, that is that underway, that is seeking to take the church of Jesus Christ and make it its own. I don't think I'm being some sort of fancy prophet in saying that. I think that the handwriting is clearly on the wall. 
We have those today. There is this move forward. I don't know that it will hit us here in the Midwest for another decade or so, but there is a very decided bent towards syncretizing Christian belief with world religions such as Buddhism and Islam. And there are today in evangelical Christian churches in this land places where there are readings in the, in the worship services from Confucius and Buddha, Hinduism, and the like. There is a syncretism that is taking place and gaining a foothold. And I believe clearly and in the context of this passage that what is happening is people are seeking to steal the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ meets to glorify Jesus Christ. Every other religious leader and guru is a fraud. And any church that wants to bring a fraud into its services and say that they are somehow worshiping Christ is deluded. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, said Jesus. Syncretism is a way of stealing the church of Jesus Christ for personal purposes. We could add to that easy believism, where there are churches that are no longer teaching that there is a hell to shun and that Christ is, will be a judge and is a judge. That message is being left out. It's being excised from the teaching and preaching of many evangelical churches. And I believe then that that is a way of stealing the church. And through it all, what is happening is the church is becoming a massive industry. There's great response. Many people coming, many buildings being built, many works of righteousness being done throughout the world as such churches grow and thrive externally. But what is happening is that the church of Jesus Christ is being stolen by the tenants. We need to remember and never forget as a church, without spending our time to throw rocks at other people necessarily, we need to remember as a church of Jesus Christ that this church belongs to Him. This local assembly was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have no business to take it and to make it whatever we want so that more people come in and so that the message is more widely received because the question is, what is the message? If the message is not Jesus' message, then it's not the right message. And we're stealing the church from Jesus. That should cause us to fear. One of the surest signs, I think, that this is happening, that the church is being stolen by people who claim to follow Jesus Christ, stolen for selfish purposes, is my fourth point, and that is judgment. The near pathological resistance to the theme of judgment is the evidence in my thinking that the church is being stolen by tenants. How do you read this parable and cut out the theme of judgment? Who is the Jesus that knows nothing of judgment? 
That is not the true Jesus. It is not the Jesus of Scripture. We, there's so much that we can't add here. Obviously, Jesus is no vindictive, mean-spirited person. He was full of grace and full of mercy and kindness and love. But we need to understand this truth and we need to live our lives on, on it that all things will be reconciled to God in heaven and in earth. All things, that means, I believe, will be set straight, if we want to put it that way. The physical universe, every believer and every unbeliever will ultimately be reconciled to God. In this sense, it will all be set straight. Jesus is Lord of creation, and Jesus is Lord of the human soul, and there will be a day when everyone will recognize that. Jesus is the Lord of all. He's not the Lord of some. And so it is nothing short of eternally self-destructive to reject Jesus Christ. You must submit to the authority of Christ crucified and risen. If you do not, He will crush you to powder in the end. You see, this isn't child's play. And it's not up to us to write the script how we think it would sound best. This is deadly serious. Jesus is not the president. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who he is. And so it's not a mere matter of bad manners to resist him. As God's son, God sent Jesus, and we must listen. Perhaps I speak to someone here today who is not reconciled to God. You have not come to a place of submitting to Jesus Christ as the Savior. You do not see him for who he truly is. Your sins are unforgiven. Let me say that there is no one who ever has or ever will or ever can love you as deeply and intimately and fully as the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not standing there swinging a bat over your head hoping to hit as many people as he can hit. He stretched out his arms and he died in your place. It's that serious. He loves you with an intimate, infinite love. But there is a day when everything will be reconciled to God. And I plead with you, if you are not reconciled to God today, be reconciled to God. You must respond. God is gracious. The words of Martin Luther, as one commentator recorded, he said, If I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. What Luther was doing was seeking to shine light on the mercy of Jesus Christ, who did not kick the world to pieces, but who stretched out his arms and died. He bore the sin in his body on the cross, that we might be reconciled to God. God is long-suffering. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
but you must understand there is a day when Jesus Christ will be acknowledged as the Lord and Savior by everyone and by the universe itself. The only thing that makes any sense is to be reconciled to Him today. You're just a clay pot. How foolish it would be to try to fly against the rock and how fearful it ought to be to consider that someday the rock will fall on you. This rock that will judge and crush and destroy is the rock on which you can stand and find eternal safety. Come to Jesus and be reconciled to God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I am overwhelmed right now with the truth of your word that speaks of the foolishness of preaching, the weakness of the preacher, and the utter, in one sense, inappropriateness of a human being expressing such thoughts. But Father, we're striving to do what you have called us to do, and that is to proclaim the truth as Jesus proclaimed it. And he did not issue this parable to make anybody feel comfortable. He issued this parable because it was the saving truth of God. And so, Lord, as we think on these matters. It's, it's been shared through a human vessel, and as we as human vessels have filtered this truth and respond in our heart in agreement with the message of Christ, may we never forget that we are but clay pots. This treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ and this treasure of truth is in clay pots. As a jar of clay, I pray, Father, that you would please, in your mercy, take the truth that is divine and allow it to sing in our souls. And I pray, Father, that we'd be mindful of a lost and needy world and thoughtful, Lord, as to whether or not we are, in fact, in the faith. If our salvation is mere religious ritual, we are in deep trouble. But God, I pray that we'd find the assurance and the confidence within our heart that we have, in fact, trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ by simple faith and are, in fact, saved. May that work be going on now in the hearts of your people. God, with all of my heart and soul, I plead with you not to permit anyone to be self-deceived. 
What a tragedy to hear these words, to think that we're okay and to walk on. Please rescue the lost. For those of us who know you, even for those of us whose faith is shaky and whose walk is weak, may we learn as your children to place our confidence in Jesus Christ and to press on from here, seeking to continue on in the faith once delivered to the saints. May that faith be real in our hearts. And as we sing now, Father, may you just confirm to us that we are your children as that bears out the truth of our experience. For any who know you not as Savior, may this be a day of dawning. May you turn on the lights and enliven the hearts of those that are still unreconciled to you. This is our prayer in the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.